Hey friends, Brett from Trogonomics, and welcome to Porch Beers. I hope you're having an amazing day. So here we go. I've got a good question here for Trog, and uh, we're going to stray a little bit off of the normal routine, but not entirely. As we are going through a presidential change, political change here in this country, one of the things that usually happens at the start is some economic policy changes. So the questions we're going to ask Trog are about some policy advice that he might give Vice President Harris and President Biden uh, for the first 100 days to help us recover and get out of this economic slump that we're in. Uh, this COVID-related economic downturn, as well as a little bit of recovery coming out of the last administration. And then the second question is going to be about his four- and eight-year plan advice. If he were to have the luxury of having the ear of the president and vice president, what would he suggest over the next four and eight years? So we don't always talk about politics, but we do often talk a little bit of policy. And obviously, we talk a lot of economy and economics. And uh, so we go a little bit deeper on this one. It's a little bit of a longer porch beer as well. It's a little bit of a heavier topic. Uh, at the time of the recording was before the inauguration, but after the insurgents at the Capitol. The day that it is posted is actually the first day of President Biden's his administration where he has addressed the economy. So we're posting this on Friday the 22nd, and that was a big day for the economy conversation. So we thought it was a perfect time to drop it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Trog drops some, uh, some gems, as he always does, and has some very sound, thoughtful advice for President Biden and Vice President Harris. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I hope you Take away a few notes and enjoy listening. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the episode. We'll see you next time. All right, Trog, welcome to Porch Beers. How's your day going? It's good. How about you? Good. good. Things are good. Things are good. Happy... Porch beer day. Good to hang for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so I've got, you know, we often do uh, a micro and a macro question. Uh, occasionally we, we, uh, we kind of branch off and do a little deeper dive onto something that's either very relevant to your expertise or even maybe within your life. Um, sometimes it's healthcare, sometimes it's currency economy. Maybe it's one of your years of themes that you do. We are a few days away from the inauguration and transition of power between Trump and Biden. We have about nine days behind us was, uh, it, there was some violence at the Capitol. There was an, uh, an attempted, perhaps, I don't want to, is coup the right word? You tell me. Was it's there an attempted definitely coup? been, definitely been floating. Uh, I'm going to call it a coup. I'm not, um, a fan of what happened. I'm a, you know, I'm an immigrant. I, my family came here with the intention of good life, a great country to live in, lots of opportunities and uh, freedom, and fair elections and uh, a large population, big economy, lots of opportunities, things like that. We, we saw some folks run up on the Capitol and try to shut things down and they had handcuffs with them. They had weapons with them. They had tactical gear. So um, we're going through a little bit right now as a country. And before we jump into the beers, because of this, this topic that I want to talk about, um, I just thought I'd set it up a little bit for you. So, and, and give a little context. We are nine months, 10 months, I guess now, into significant disruption to our economy based off of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, we are four years deep into a president uh, who didn't think of everyone 
with the economic policies and some of the social policies. That's not a controversial statement. That's an absolute hard line fact, right? Yep. So here we are. Um, we've got a new president coming. We've got a transition of power. We've got an economy that's uh, beaten to the ground. And we have a uh, 340 million or so people, 330 million people in this country who um, contribute to the economy. Some of us are going through unemployment. Some of us are going through underemployment. Some of us are going through dramatic industry change. You are an expert in health economics and the economy in general. So the questions I want to ask you is, as we're going through this transition, if you had the luxury of sitting next to President Biden, Vice President Harris, and giving them a little bit of advice, what would be some of those things you would suggest for the first 100 days, those kind of short term, we really need to fix some things quick? And what would be some of those things that would be the longer term projects, the four and eight year projects that would help bring unemployment back down to a comfortable level that would help stimulate our economy? Uh, where everybody has, everybody sees benefits. So um, those are the questions. I just want you to just kind of sit there for a second, start lining up a few things. Um, we're going to start with the, the first hundred days. You know, here we are, what do we do now? And then we'll, we'll, we'll phase into the, okay, we've got a little bit of stimulation happening, a little bit of recovery happening, but much like in 2008, when Obama came into his presidency, uh, immediately jumped into the uh, Economic Recovery Act. And that was something I think, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was something in the first 100 days that, that was on his plate. And that's one of those bigger things. It took a while for that, that to kick in. So um, setting the table with those questions. If you're comfortable proceeding, we can jump into the beers. If you have a follow-up question or anything um, before we do that. Um, I appreciate the, the heads up. Um, <laughs> this was, is not a, this was, is not a fringe conversation. Yeah. I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but my, my partner was actually insinuating that she did not believe <laughs> that I got these answers or got these questions cold. And I said, no, 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 yeah. we, I really don't know what we're talking about today. And of course yeah. I tried to twist it into a compliment that my answers are so good that she just couldn't believe that, <laughs> that they weren't prepared in advance, but um, no, I'll, I'll take the 30 seconds I've got to, okay. to think about Well, that. I'm going to, I'll tell you what, I'll introduce my beer first. So that just to give you a little bit more time to think about, and then I'm going to, I'm happily going to ask you what you're drinking. But um, as today, uh, you, we joked about this once before, like, is this going to be a session beer, porch beer, or is this going to be a high octane porch beer? This is going to be a session beer, porch beer. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go ahead and just get a little bit started today. We've got a, uh, on my end anyway, we've got Boatswain Chocolate Stout. This was a uh, pickup. The wife, uh, the wife listens uh, to the podcast. Uh, it, more recently, you know, she wasn't uh, totally on board early, early on, but she picked up a couple episodes lately and uh, she hit Trader Joe's this week. And uh, she, you know, I was, I, I'm working from home as a lot of us are, she comes home She's like, hey, I picked up a few beers for you. You know, I thought maybe for porch beers. And I was like, 
have you been listening to the Porch Beers episodes <laughs> where I talk about you going to Trader Joe's? And she was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, that's great. Okay. So I think so, the secret uh, is to mention her more then. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So she picked up, uh, you know, chocolate stout, no secret. It's cold. It's wet. It's dreary here in Portland. Stout is, uh, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so Boatswain, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, chocolate stout brewed with cocoa powder, which, I, you know, chocolate and oatmeal in stouts, I, I'm a fan of. Uh, I feel like I was kind of daydreaming about this the other day. Um, in, in, my net, in my world, uh, Lagunitas makes an oatmeal stout that is just the pinnacle for me. It's just the best stout I've ever had. And I was always kind of thinking like we should do a, a porch beers stout uh, rating or taste testing or something like that. And using that as like, is it 85% Lagunitas uh, oatmeal stout? Is it 60%? Is it 90? You know, that's the gold standard in my book. But these guys are out of uh, the Rhinelander Brewery uh, is the, uh, the, the company that made this for Trader Joe's. And, uh, you know, respect to them for having a side hustle. That's a great, a great trogonomics. We've got affordable, good beer, We've got a side hustle from a brewery. And if I can just deep dive even further, Rhinelander is uh, maybe a hundred miles or so from the Northern Wisconsin border uh, where the upper peninsula of Michigan is. Population 7,000, I don't know what's going on there, but they somehow are making beer that made it to Portland and nothing but respect to those guys for figuring that out, those, those, uh, the men and women and the folks over at Rhinelander Brewery. So cheers to you. I'm going to get started because I'm concerned. I'm just going to pour my beer into a coffee cup because that's kind of how we do it. I'm a little concerned about how, how you're going to answer these questions and if they're going to bum me out or if I'm going to feel some relief. Yeah, so, well, I'm on, on that topic. I'm still thinking, uh, I guess in the meantime, I can talk about my beer. Um, mm -hmm. So I have one from Wicked Weed Brewing in oh, yeah. Nashville, mm -hmm. uh, North Carolina. So I'm I've got Lieutenant Dank, which I think is a take on Lieutenant Dan from. I was going to say it. I, is that um, Forrest Gump? Yes, yes, uh, I think so. Although 20. the they have a very creative little story on the side of the can that has nothing to do with with Forrest Gump. So it may mm. it may be inspired by something else. Um, probably the more interesting thing to talk about is that. Uh, Wicked Weed was a uh, independently owned brewery that a few years ago um, got successful enough that it got bought out by one of the big distributors. And um, apparently in the beer snob world, there was a little bit of, uh, do we still like Wicked Weed or do we not? Mm. Did they sell out? You know, do, are they still going to be good? Um, sure. This conversation uh, transcends uh, genres and you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't noticed, uh, you know, the beer's still good to me. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still on the wicked weed bandwagon, but uh, depending on what you, what you put priorities on in terms of ownership models and yeah, uh, you know, freedom to innovate those kind of things. But yeah, I totally get that. I get that. You know, like as an entrepreneur, the selling out is victory, right? You eliminate your risk. You have a financial windfall. You have, proof of concept that whatever you were making was not only good enough, but it was good enough for somebody else to want to be a piece of. Um, but then you kind of go back to the like, you know, I, I immediately, whenever I think about V 
the conversation of selling out or transcending uh, your own uh, subculture into the mainstream, I think of Green Day. Um, <laughs> and Green Day was one of those bands that in the Bay Area, they were the underground legends, right? They were just playing at the clubs and they were the, you wanted to go see them, you know, back in the day. And then when they got, uh, I think, was it Dookie was there? That's um, the first one I remember. Yeah. So when, when Dookie kind of hit the mainstream and they got, they got really big, there was just backlash and, you know, the clubs that you would, uh, Billy Joe tells this story of um, going to the clubs that, you know, he grew up playing in and the graffiti on the bathroom wall was, you know, F Billy Joe and Green Day sucks and all this. And he's like, yesterday y'all loved me. Today I got a check and you hate me. Um, so, you know, that I, perhaps the folks at Wicked Weed kind of went through that a little bit. But, um, you know, as somebody who's drinking uh, a nice Trader Joe's beer, um, <laughs> you know, I imagine the folks at Rhinelander Brewery are paying some employees a good wage to, to make that beer that made it over to Portland. They're paying some truck drivers that brought it over here. They, uh, they're paying people to make the cans and artists to do the logos and things like that. So uh, in the same sense that uh, Wicked Weed had some, some uh, underground success in North Carolina, I've heard this conversation a few times uh, in the North Carolina beer drinking scene and, you know, good for them. Success and failure will uh, cut friends out of your lives and create enemies and uh, admirers, whether you want them or not. And, uh, you know, I'd rather be on that end of the conversation, <laughs> having gone through the other side. So Yeah, yeah. A few hundred million and, and a little bit of Twitter backlash is maybe a decent trade-off. Yeah. And the beer is uh, uh, delightful this afternoon? Yes. Yeah. No, nice. still good. Still top-notch. Yeah. Well... If you're ready, all right. Um, the let's time get down is, to it. So the time is here. Um, now, again, I appreciate that a economic policy advisor uh, in the United States to an incoming president and vice president is going to have more than three or four minutes to come up with a plan. <laughs> but what what does the first hundred days look for you? Look like for you? I I still think the economy doesn't recover until the pandemic is under control. So, you know, I'm, I'm hearing Biden talk about an ambitious vaccine target. You know, I think he's talking about like a hundred million doses delivered in the first hundred days. So I think in general, the getting the pandemic under control is, is definitely priority one, both for just the health of the nation and for the economy. Um, yeah. You know how to do that. I, you know, I haven't heard, I haven't researched a lot of his plan, but the the highlights that I heard sounded reasonable. We have vaccines. I, my understanding is the supply chain is mostly there. We've got to make sure that we have the ancillary things like the syringes and, right. you know, the supporting things. But um, so make sure those are stored up. And I think we just have to get really serious about getting it into to people. Now, I think you could make the case that we simplify the process a little bit. You know, there's even personally, you know, I'm having to read some pretty detailed groupings around when, you know, which grouping do I fall into and when can I go get it? There, there, yeah. I think you could make the case that simplifying that process could help. You could think about like an age cut. So 75 and over, come yeah. and get it. 65 and over, come and get it. Yeah. And 
and not make as many qualifications that might confuse people. And then I think we just need help making it available. You know, I've heard, I think there were plans to the National Guard, I think was involved in this, but, you know, to get some like mass, you know, big tent outside, you know, let's get a lot of people through. I think engaging the the large pharmacy chains as much as we can, you know, the Walgreens, the CVSs. So I think we just, we want to make it ubiquitous as we possibly can. So that would be like step one. And I, from what I'm hearing, that seems like I'm not too out of line with what they're thinking. Yeah, that certainly seems like the tip of the iceberg is if that's under control, there'll be a lot of dominoes that kind of gracefully fall behind it into place. And I think, I think on the economic side, um, we did have another round of stimulus at the end of 2020. I, I think anything more going forward, um, I think we can start getting a little more targeted. So I would focus a lot on the people that are either have already lost their jobs or at risk of losing their jobs. So I think targeting money towards, you know, increased unemployment benefits, either length or size of the check. I guess I'm not as excited about, I think the latest I heard is, you know, $1,400 checks. So there's always this debate about like, what's the next check size coming that is simple. It is popular. I, I do worry that there could be other ways to target that money um, so that folks like me who keep getting a little bit of money who honestly don't really need it. And then I have to yeah. decide how I want to funnel that to a place where I think it could help. Um, I think we could be more targeted. So I think if focusing on employment benefits, um, it would be a good place to start. Uh, and then again, if there's yeah. anything that can help I think we talked about this maybe in an earlier one. If we can yeah. keep people connected to their jobs, that will help the recovery as well so that we don't have to reshuffle the deck. Something that you mentioned in that previous episode that you're referencing is the amount of time that it takes between losing a job and getting rehired at a, at a similar job experience, um, which I think in the, in the one-off session section, um, I think if anybody's gone through that, they can be like, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, you know, the longer you're unemployed, the longer you're unemployed. But to hear an economist say, that's a real thing, right? Like, that's not just you being frustrated that you can't find the job that you want. That's a real economic issue of unemployment lasts. And having an economic stimulus component that alleviates the concept of unemployment is a way better solution than um, allowing unemployment to happen and then supporting those who are unemployed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think the, the third thing that, that I would focus on, and again, this, this could look like direct cash subsidies like checks, but I think, you know, I, I worry about housing, right? So people that are, mm-hmm. maybe they're unemployed, maybe they're, they've been furloughed for a bit, but if there's a way to sort of, I, I think the moratoriums on evictions could be extended. And I think there's talk about that. And this could be both the renter slash mortgage holder, or, you know, there may be some ways to work with the banks that hold those mortgages directly, but finding a way to assist people and keep them housed, I think is another thing that obviously alleviates a lot of suffering in the moment, but it also makes a, a transition back to a growing economy that much, that much quicker. Um, yeah. So I think those are the probably the three areas that I would think about really early okay. on. Okay. Those would be some of the quickest, most impactful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you have, you, we can put that to bed. What does a four to eight year strategy look like where you want to make some significant impact on the, the economic health of our country, of our 
population. You want to support industry growth. You want to alleviate industry decline in certain areas. What are some strategies or some approaches you would suggest or you know, what comes to mind when you think about TROC's four, four to eight year plan on economic recovery? I think you asked me this in an earlier episode, kind of what what worries me coming out of this. And I mentioned that the, mm-hmm. the growing wealth gap was one of the things. So, mm-hmm. and I'm optimistic that, that we had good fundamentals in the economy before the pandemic. And I think, again, if we can get the transition out of it right, I am optimistic that as a whole, that we're in a place where we can, we can get the economy growing again. So I think in, if I'm thinking that four to eight year range, I think I'd actually focus a lot on the disparities um, and mm-hmm. making sure that everyone is a part of that growth. A couple of things come to mind. Um, again, these are things that are being talked about, so they're not completely you know, unheard of, but yeah. I think one is health and medical coverage, health insurance coverage. Um, yeah. We, for a lot of people that's still tied to their job, we have record unemployment. There's been huge increases in people that are now uninsured. The Affordable Care Act exchanges and the subsidies that come with those for low-income people help, but I'm I'm a supporter of the public option and putting a, a floor underneath everyone where health insurance coverage isn't something that it's a yes or no, it's it's more you've got it and you know, now you now you're into the system and you you have to figure out, you know, who's going to be my doctor and who am I going to see, but you're not yeah. worried about about the insurance coverage itself. So I think that's one way healthcare is almost a fifth of the economy. It's a leading cause of bankruptcy. I'm thinking about, again, kind of making sure there's a a safety net under people so that they can not worry about things and worry about other things like education, growing their skill set, finding a better job, um, and not being stuck in a position where, you know, even if they've got health insurance, but they're they're afraid to make a move because they may lose it. Um, so I think something like a public option is would be beneficial. And I, I do think, um, you know, focus in the historically, at least in the in this last century, education was really important for for making sure that people were, were upwardly mobile. And there are big disparities in educational outcomes, especially at, at, at you know, lower levels, high school, elementary college matriculation. There's talk about, you know, loan forgiveness and things like that. Um, I see where that talk is coming from, but I think in a lot of ways, uh, a blanket loan forgiveness up to X thousands of dollars can actually be regressive, that it it would actually potentially benefit higher wealth families that were able to attend college, that were able to access the loans and I, again, thinking about targeting um, here, I think trading some simplicity in policy for a target that would would get those students at the margin that if it was not for a little, a little bit of money, they could they could get to college. Like that's that's who we need to focus on. I'm at a crossroads with how I want to proceed. <laughs> um, I have some very strong opinions about our wealth in, in discrepancy between the, the poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich in this country. And there is a, it, there is inertia, right? We've talked about that. It, and it is somewhat, in my opinion, as an outsider, not an expert in the economy. So let's maybe walk down this just if we can. I feel like there's some inertia on keeping the poor community away from 
the opportunities that can help make those changes. To your point, education. You and I both had a good education. We were able to afford it. We weren't, we were given those opportunities uh, and those opportunities were available to us. But going to, to your point, loan forgiveness is one thing. Um, I had student loans. Had they been forgiven, had they not been forgiven, they were paid for either way, right? We were able to, to work through them. Um, something that I experienced in San Francisco when I was living there was a conversation about junior college being free. And there was a city college of San Francisco. If you grew up in San Francisco, you had the opportunity to go to city college of San Francisco for, if not free, a very affordable rate. And the, the idea was to educate those who couldn't afford to, to go to Stanford down the road or Berkeley across the, the bay, et cetera. Unpack that a little bit. You know, you, you brought up the topic of is loan forgiveness going to help the, the wealthy indiscriminately? Is it going to um, still help those, you know, bridge that wealth gap or would it hurt? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of bias I've got as an economist is that um, I always get a little worried when the regulation is directed at prices. So, you know, as a believer that in a lot of situations, markets are going to be a very efficient way to deliver things. Prices are what markets use to figure out who's getting what they value the most and also to create an incentive to get that thing supplied. Right. So Mm -hmm. the, you know, so when you start talking about free college, junior college, associate's degree, um, I always stop and ask myself, okay, that is an approach, but that price, as I was, the point I was making earlier is that price gets paid by everyone, whether you are low income, medium, medium, middle income or high income. And um, is there a better way to help those at the low end while not also hand, you know, giving handouts to people that don't necessarily need it. Right. Um, so, you know, again, I think, I think there might be better ways. I mean, we have a, you know, just at the college level, like we have an existing Pell Grant, uh, program. You may or may not remember at least applying for one of those when we started yeah. at Baylor. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are explicitly kind of income-based they're, they're not loans, they're grants, right? So amongst you, you target a population that's expressed interest in attending college. They need the money to be able to do that. You give them the money and then that's fine. Everyone, anyone yeah. else that can pay the price or need to, to borrow yeah. to pay that price are free to do that as well. Um, you know, having said that, I, you know, I don't, I'm obviously a, I'm, I work at a university, so I don't want to be too self-interested here. And I also realize that the pipeline of students to college is one place to focus, but there are, there are discrepancies and disparities that are happening well, well before we get to college age students. And so even at the pre-K level, um, there are things that we could think about doing. I listened to other podcasts around economics and there was a Freakonomics episode um, and I'll find the link so you can put it in the notes, but um, they were, uh, there was an economist on there who studies uh, child welfare. And she made the point that we have a lot of child poverty in the US. And again, I'm talking about, you know, younger kids here, not college, but like when, when they're young. And she gave a statistic that really got me thinking. She said that if we just gave these low-income households with children, if we gave the children like a typical social social security style or in size benefit, right? If we mm-hmm. supported them like we support the low-income elderly, yeah. that for about $180 billion a year, we would basically we could basically eliminate child poverty with a social security style payment to these I, to these children. Almost- just like that regular check that 
um, that the elderly get at a, at a certain point. Right. Right. And obviously it would be time limited. We're just talking children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. in the scope of things, $180 billion, it sound, it, it used to sound like a lot, but like, you know, the, the stimulus packages and the, and the aid we're talking about now, we're, we're talking about trillions of dollars at a time, not right. billions. Right. Um, and that may or may not be, you know, the best answer, but it's, it's interesting to think that a relatively straightforward policy with a price tag that's, that's not unbelievably large could help, you know, again, yeah. reduce that wealth gap at, at ages where your human capital is, you know, you're, you're basically learning how to learn, you're learning skills. Right. And right. all of that is feeds into the, you know, the college pipelines and feeds into the employees. So, you know, you want to think about lots of, there, there can be bottlenecks at lots of places along that path. And I can tell you, they're all experiencing our people of color, our low income people. They're all, there are disparities at every step along the way. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just be, we have to be careful not to get too hung up on one particular policy, like loan forgiveness for college. And yeah, I feel like there's a good, you know, like with any campaign, there's a, there's good talking points, you know, there's good slogans and loan forgiveness was, that was one of those great talking points. But to your point, it's not, it doesn't speak to everybody. Something that was on the ballot here in Portland this past November was an opportunity for free preschool. Um, And this was something that I didn't think about until I had kids. Um, I had my older son went through preschool in San Francisco. My younger son has gone through preschool both in Oakland and now in Portland. It didn't, you know, it wasn't something that was on my radar was the financial cost. Um, that there wasn't public preschool, there was private preschool or there was no preschool. Um, and I think that is a very interesting conversation. I was, a, I was a fan of this idea. As somebody who's paid for preschool, both when I was unemployed and both when I was employed, uh, I understand how important it is. I understand how expensive it is, you know, even at a, at a fair and affordable opportunity. But imagining the, the difference between somebody who has a college degree and is in the workforce uh, in, a, in an ideal conversation that is having some debt relief versus somebody who is maybe younger in their life financially and uh, has the uh, added financial uh, responsibility of a four, three, four-year-old um, it, maybe there is something to be said there for that age bracket, uh, having some, some income. And we've also spoken a little bit over the year, uh, over the years about universal basic income, which, you know, to your point, there's a little bit of that for the elderly, um, but there's not that for the uh, entire population. And there's not that uh, to this point for the, you know, zero to four-year-old mm-hmm. Um what are your thoughts? Is that kind of your, what you're suggesting is maybe there's a little bit of, you know, every two-year-old should be able to afford the opportunity to explore preschool or to explore uh, daycare. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I guess let me take that in two chunks. I mean, I, the pre-K stuff specifically, I mean, there, there are some federal programs. There's like the Head Start program, um, oh. but they could, they could be, they could be definitely beefed up. Um, my understanding is there's there's pretty good evidence that at least uh, for sort of the quality of early education, elementary school, that 
that the, a good pre-K program can help. The other thing it does is it helps gives, it help, helps give parents, especially mothers, more hours to actually go work and earn right. um, when they right. have that a place that they can take their kids. The, you know, on the, on the universal basic income side, I mean, what I, again, what I like about policies like that. And, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, the stimulus checks are so popular is they are pretty simple. Like they're simple to execute. You know, I got my second round check like really fast, you know, so like the government can cut checks. So one of the nice things about, um, about those programs is that they're not overly complicated. There's not necessarily a lot of bureaucracy that has to take place. You know, again, direct cash assistance is something that I'm coming around on um, when we, when we think about ways to, to address issues. Um, We're talking about a bigger issue here. So I'm just going to go with it, right? We're talking about wealth the wealth gap. I feel like like the wealth gap is maybe one of the fundamental flaws in the American dream. Is it repairable? Is it like it's sold? The idea is sold that anyone can do anything. Anyone can get anything. If you work hard, you can get it. And I don't, as an adult, I may be a little less optimistic and less bulletproof as I was 20 years ago. But is is it ever repairable, the concept of this wealth gap? Is it, is it, um, is yeah, there an, is there an, I mean, that's the question, right? Is, can yeah. it, will it, will it ever go away? And, and will there ever be true economic equality across uh, the population in the United States? I mean, I'll, I'll add sort of another question that I've, I've definitely had friends ask me, which is, is, is wealth inequality just inherent in, a market-based capitalist society? Is it an outcome that will happen if if you're leaning towards markets and capital markets to, to organize your economy? I think in some ways, uh, again, in a capitalist market-based economy, yes, I think there, there can easily develop inequalities in wealth. Um, the the magic of compounding is such that once you're once once you've accumulated, you've been successful in that market it's very easy for that rate of growth to then outpace the people that don't have as much. Right. So it's, it's, I think in some ways it's like a, it's sort of a curse of compounding and just how that, how that function works. Right. Is it fixable? Um, I've, I don't have a citation for this, but I've seen some work that's, that's looked at this question historically. And my, what I remember from the the abstract was that um, wealth gaps have been reduced and they typically happen in big emergencies. So wars, <laughs> if your country's in a war, that'll close the wealth gap. Um, mm-hmm. Pandemics. Uh, we're, we're certainly, uh, we've talked about this over the past episodes, we're in one of those. Yeah, you know, we are. I'm not sure are, this one or, would be the same. I'm not sure this one, but, but I think, in okay. other words, historically, things that have like destroyed a lot of infrastructure, reduce overall wealth, but it also serves to sort of close the wealth gap. Yeah. So in that's sort of the that's a pessimistic pessimistic answer to say yes, we can you know it can be reversed but I'm not sure that's the way if there's another way let's figure that out because what you you don't necessarily want to bring the wealth you know lose wealth enough in the wealthy to make it even you'd rather bring the less wealthy up right to close right. the gap. So you right. can close a gap either way. You can just destroy wealth and everyone's now relatively poor, or we can find a way to, to lift it up. So 
I don't know the history of specific countries, but, you know, often Europe and, and Nordic countries have been put forth as mostly market-based economies with government tweaks, right? So right, you can right. think about a very progressive tax and spending plan that redistributes, you know, some of that wealth from the wealthier to the, to the less wealthy. Um, and those, there are definitely societies, you know, modern rich societies where the wealth gaps are much lower than they are here and partly because of the policy that they've thought of. So if cross-sectionally you can look and say some places seem to be doing this better, yeah, you could, you could think about some of those policies here. This porch beers went deeper and <laughs> heavier than I had anticipated, but to be perfectly honest, the I set it up like that, right? I mean, we're talking about transition of power that's been the most volatile in our lifetimes, right? We've had some, we've had, we've gone through the Al Gore, George W. Uh, Bush. Um, we went through an impeachment with Clinton when we were in college. We went through a one-term president in George H.W. Bush. Um, we went through a, a transition from a Jimmy Carter to a Ronald Reagan, right? We went through a Ronald Reagan winning every single state except for one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, in his uh, follow-up election. We've seen some stuff in our lifetime. I would still argue that what we're experiencing today is, is remarkably unique. And the overflow to merely political transition and uh, cult of personality juxtaposition, we have two you know, archetypes of uh, two opposite ends of the spectrum. But there's so much more than just like, wow, this guy is so polarizing and this guy's trying to be less polarizing and, you know, but economy, healthcare, job market, um, the socio-political comfort zone that I think everybody, that I think a lot of us would like to live in where we don't see pain on a daily basis. We see unity and, and community every day. So here we are, <laughs> here we are having a porch beer about, about that. And I, I'll let you have the final thought, but I certainly hope that I certainly hope that we grow from where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's troubled me about recent events is it's not so much the political bad actors. I mean, I think we've had, if, if you stretch your history back further, there's definitely been political bad actors. Sure. This, you sure. know, Trump may be, uh, unique uh, case in recent history. Um, I guess what well, gets me, what gets me more is, is the, uh, this is both as just a, a person that has their own kind of political leanings, but also as a scientist is um, that we don't seem to be agreeing on what the facts are to debate and the amount that we're divided on just exactly what it is that's happening. That's been scary to me to think that we can get two different views of reality that are so different. So I don't know how to fix that part. Um, I'm hopeful that the next administration will be more uh, stable and, and um, precedented. I'm, I'm tired of hearing unprecedented. I want to hear that there's precedent <laughs> for things that are happening. <laughs> and so I'm hopeful for that, but yeah. I, I think the, the structural, the structural breaks seem to be in, we seem to be interpreting, interpreting the world in very, very different ways that, are so different that they don't seem to be compatible to even have a conversation. So I don't know what to do with that to end on a really dark note. Um, 
We're in an unprecedented time. <laughs> Can't we get back to precedent? Um, I don't disagree with you. We're, we're in a darker era. And I hope, I personally hope for a better concept of normalcy, a more um, inclusive concept of normalcy where, where everybody is succeeding um, individually and as a, as, as, a, as a country and a community. Yeah. You know, I, before we go, I, I, I do need to say, like, I, I want to be also aware that, you know, our, our friends and colleagues uh, of color, especially our, our black friends and, and family and, and colleagues, I in some ways, there's a history here that and that goes way back. And, you know, we yeah. keep saying it's unprecedented, but there's a lot of precedent for a lot of the white nationalism that we saw at the Capitol, the Confederate flags. Yeah, references to Auschwitz. I think the the unprecedented um, part, and I'm gonna, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm gonna let you continue your point, but I think the unprecedented part is it's being spoken about publicly. Well, uh, and, and it, that that has happened, you know, in the past too. I think you're yeah. you're right. I think in a in a shorter time window, I think you're right that you know in in the last 20 years, 25 years, um, it hasn't been normalized in the public debate the way that it is now. Um, but it's definitely been there before. The Ku Klux Klan has been invited to the White House in the past. Even in my home state, we've had, you know, in Wilmington, there was an, an elected, you know, elected officials violently overthrown because they were black. So this stuff has happened and I don't want to ignore, you know, that perspective on things. And in some ways, um, if white folks are catching up to, to how bad this is, because it's it's now at levels that we can't ignore. Um, that's probably something good for us to learn. But I want to say that that's there as well. Um, it's I, I don't think any I think, well, very few people would agree this is where we want to be. So I'm hopeful that we can we can heal and and start to be a little more civil with each other. But I look forward to that day. Trog, um, I always enjoy talking with you. I enjoyed our porch beers before we started recording them. I enjoy them while we record them. Today was a heavier day for us, and uh, nothing that you said was uh, was uh, unexpected for me, having known you for for so long. Your your conviction and your clarity, given the amount of education and research and time that you put into understanding the economy, is uh, is nothing short of remarkable. So I hope that someday. Somebody in a big White House in Washington does listen to you <laughs> because, you know, as a as somebody who's not on the inside, but uh, hopes for uh, some of those same things. It's nice to hear somebody with your education, your background and your body of work point out that those are things, you know, wealth, the wealth gap is an issue. Uh, unemployment is challenging. Raising a family is difficult debt is difficult. I, I hope that it that our future is less about slogans for political leaders and, you know, true architecture of a future. Yep. I agree. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next time on Porch Fears, my friend. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Hey friends, Brett from Trogonomics, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. We had a great time recording it. I hope you enjoyed it and found it resourceful and useful. 
After listening, please head to the website for all the details and the resources and the information that you just heard in the episode, as well as past episodes and a bit more background on Trog and myself. The website is trogonomics.com, T-R-O-G-O-N as in Nancy, O-M as in Michael, I-C-S.com, T-R-O-G-O-N-O-M. ICS.com. You can also find us on social media at Trogonomics. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you next time.